Hello. Today I want to read um, something from Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's from her book uh, called No Time to Spare, Thinking About What Matters. Uh, it it's uh, a collection of blog posts. <laughs> yeah, Earth, Ursula K. Le Guin has a blog. Had a blog? <laughs> I just, I find it really quite delightful that this like incredible writer blogs. I'm sure there are plenty of incredible writers who blog, right? Okay, so the, um, her writing today that I'm going to share is called Having My Cake. Yes, please. I'll have cake, chocolate, uh, German chocolate cake, please. Like black forest cake. Hello. I'll take some of that. Okay. So it is on page 48, having my cake. She wrote it on April, 2012. That's when it was posted, April, 2012. The inability to understand proverbs is a symptom of something. Is it schizophrenia or paranoia? Anyhow, something very bad. When I heard that many years ago, it worried me. Everything I have ever thought about a symptom worries me. Do I have it? Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, God. And I had proof of my paranoia or schizophrenia. There was a very common proverb that I knew and I'd never understood. You can have your cake and eat it too. My personal logic said, how can you eat a cake you don't have? And since I couldn't argue with that, I silently stuck to it, which left me in a dilemma. Either the saying didn't make sense, so why did intelligent people say it? Or I was schizophrenic or paranoid. Years passed during which now and then I puzzled over my proverb, my problem with the proverb. And slowly, slowly it dawned on me that the word have has several meanings or shades of meaning. The principal one being own or possess, but one of the less common connotations is to hold on to, keep. You can't keep your cake and eat it too. Huh, I get it. It's a good proverb. And I am not a paranoid schizophrenic. <laughs> but it seemed odd that I hadn't arrived sooner at the keep meaning of have. I puzzled over that for a while too and finally came up with this. For one thing, it seems to me that the verbs are in the wrong order. You have to have your cake before you eat it after all. I might have understood the saying if it was, you can't eat your cake and have it too. And then another kind of confusion having to do with have. In the West Coast dialect of English I grew up with, I had cake at the party is how we said, I ate cake at the party. So you can't have your cake and eat it too, was trying to tell me that I couldn't eat my cake and eat it too. And hearing it that way as a kid, I thought, huh? 
but didn't say anything because there is no way, no possible way, a kid can ask about everything grown-ups say that the kid thinks, huh? So I just tried to figure it out. And once I got stuck with the, the logic of the cake, you have being the cake you can't eat, the possibility never occurred to me that it was all about hoarding versus gobbling or the necessity of choice when there was no middle way. I expect you've had quite enough of cake by now. I'm sorry. But see, this is the kind of thing I think about a lot. Nouns, cake, verbs, have, words, and the uses and misuses of words, and the meanings of words, and how the words and their meanings change with time and with place, and the derivations of words from older words or other languages. Words fa fascinate me the way box elder beetles fascinate my friend Pard. Pard at this point is not allowed outside, so he has to hunt indoors. Indoors, we have at this point no mice, but we have beetles. Oh yes, Lord, we have beetles. And if Pard hears, smells, or sees a beetle, that beetle instantly occupies his universe. He will stop at nothing. He will root in wastebaskets, overturn and destroy small fragile objects, push large heavy dictionaries aside, leap wildly in the air or up the wall, stare unmoving for 10 minutes at the unattainable light fixture in which a beetle is visible as a tiny moving silhouette. And when he gets the beetle, and he always does, he knows that you can't have your beetle and eat it too. So he eats it instantly. I know though, I don't really like knowing it. Oh, I know, though I don't really like knowing it, that not many people share this particular fascination or obsession. With words, I mean, not beetles. Although I want to point out that Charles Darwin was almost as deeply fascinated by beetles as Pard is, though with a somewhat different goal. Darwin even put one in his mouth once in a doomed attempt to keep it by eating it. It didn't work. Anyhow, many people enjoy reading about the meaning and history of picturesque words and phrases, but not many enjoy brooding for years over a shade of significance of the verb to have in a banal saying. <laughs> even among writers, not all seem to share my enjoyment of pursuing a word or a usage through the dictionaries and the wastebaskets. If I start doing it aloud in public, some of them look at me with horror or compassion or try to go quietly away. For that reason, I'm not even certain that it has anything to do with me being a writer. But I think it does. Not with being a writer per se, but with my being a writer, my way of being a writer. When asked to talk about what I do, I've often compared writing with handicrafts, weaving, pot making, woodworking. I see my fascination with words as very like, say, the fascination with wood common to carvers, carpenters, cabinet makers. 
people who find a fine piece of old chestnut with delight and study it and learn the grain of it and handle it with sensuous pleasure and consider what's been done with chestnut and what you can do with it, loving the wood itself, the mere material, the stuff of their craft. Yet when I compare my craft with theirs, I feel slightly presumptuous. Woodworkers, potters, weavers engage with real materials and the beauty of their work is profoundly and splendidly bodily. Writing is so immaterial, so mental an activity. In its origin, it's merely artful speech and the spoken word is no more than breath. To write or otherwise record the word is to embody it, make it durable. And calligraphy and typesetting are material crafts that achieve great beauty. I appreciate them. But in fact, they have little more to do with what I do than weaving or pot making or woodworking does. It's grand to see one's poem beautifully printed, but the important thing to the poet or anyhow to this poet, is merely to see it printed. However, whenever, so that readers can read it, so it can go from mind to mind. I work in my mind. What I do is done in my mind. And what my hands do with it in writing it down is not the same as what the hands of the weaver do with the yarn or the potter's hands with the clay or the cabinet makers with the wood. If what I do, what I make is beautiful, it isn't a physical beauty, it's imaginary. It takes place in the mind, my mind and my readers. You could say that I hear voices and believe the voices are real, which would mean I was schizophrenic but the proverb test proves I'm not. I do, I do understand it, doctor. And that then by writing what I hear, I induce or compel readers to believe the voices are real too. That doesn't describe it well though. It doesn't feel that way. I don't really know what it is I've done all my life, this word working. But I know that to me, words are things, almost immaterial, but actual and real things, and that I like them. I like their most material aspect, the sound of them heard in the mind or spoken by the voice. And right along with that, inseparably, I like the dances of meaning words do with one another the endless changes and complexities of their interrelationships in sentenced or text by which imaginary worlds are built and shared. Writing engages me in both these aspects of words in an inexhaustible playing, which is my life work. Words are my matter, my stuff. Words are my skein of yarn, my lump of wet clay, my block of uncarved wood. Words are my magic, anti-proverbial cake, anti-proverbial cake. 
I eat it and I still have it. <laughs> Having my cake by Ursula K. Le Guin. <laughs>